Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Accord Research Alliance podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Check, and I am coming back to you with another uh, recording from our 2018 Spiritual Metrics and Research Intensive. So this recording is on the uh, practitioners panel that we had last year. The title of that panel was Case Studies in Integrating Faith and Development and Research from Within the Accord Network. So uh, we had a number of folks from different organizations share on how they were integrating faith and development into their research agenda within their organization. So I hope you enjoy listening to this. It was one of our most popular sessions, I think, from the last few years. There was just some really rich sharing and discussion there. Uh, and also I wanted to mention that if you haven't signed up for the research intensive 2019 research intensive or the one accord form, it's not too late to do so. Registration is still live and you can do that by going to accord-forum.squarespace.com to sign up and, and see what the program's going to be like this year. I do apologize for the length of this podcast the panel session was quite long since i think we had about five panelists um and i also apologize for the sound quality on the last podcast release with gene duff gene was actually speaking to us last year over skype so we had a number of filters there working through to get that podcast out to you so i expect the sound quality to get or to be a little bit better this time around and i hope you all enjoy all right looks like we're getting settled in Welcome back from lunch and a great morning session. We are now entering the territory of the panel discussion post-lunch, which can be a challenging time for us. We're going to try and keep the energy flowing. So here are the rules of this panel discussion. We're going to do a series of five-minute presentations by five panelists who represent five different organizations. So they're going to introduce a program. They're going to talk about particular research they've done with some spiritual metrics components and some of the learning and challenges that they've had. So they get five minutes and no more, unless they have three cards, you'll notice. Uno cards. So these Uno cards get exactly what it says on the back of the card, which is Uno, one more minute. So if they have three chances to get another uh, minute throughout the panel discussion. After the series of presentations, we're, we're calling this the panel interrogation. So this is your time to ask all sorts of questions. And I'm going to try and make sure that we get a good representation of questions from lots of different people. The panelists only have two minutes to respond to your questions. So we're not going to be allowing for too long of a response that begins to make the eyelids begin to close. So they've got two minutes to respond, but they can also extend by one minute. If they're finding that they're, they need more time, they can play their card. But they only got three cards, as you can see. The other thing, too, is that if, let's say, Kristen responds to a question for two minutes, but... There needs to be more detail, or there needs to be more, more clarification. The person who asked the question can ask a follow-up, and then she'd get an additional minute. All right? Okay. Are you with me still? You with me? 
So, also, if a panelist wants to ask other panelists questions, you're free to do so. If a panelist is struggling to respond to a question or doesn't know the answer or wants to maybe consult with colleagues before, that's fine. They can refuse to answer a question. We can take down the question, get a response, and email it later on. So we're taking the pressure off. You don't have to answer every question you're asked if you don't feel comfortable. All right, any questions? Okay, so we're going to start with uh, Michaela, sorry, Michaela Cochran. And she's going to be our first speaker. Well, before you come up, we also have, um, after that, uh, Rebecca Menser from Hope International. And then Ryan Smeets from Food for the Hungry. Uh, Nathan Maloney from Living Water. And Kristen Check from Water Mission. So give them a round of applause as we start. Okay, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Michaela Cochran uh, from Compassion International. Um, I'm with their program effectiveness research team. And can everyone hear me okay? Good. Oh, yes. I'm a little shorter than most people. Okay. I was supposed to make a connection to our earlier speakers. And all I can say right now is that Rebecca has just become like my new life model. <laughs> just, like I wanted to be like her when I grew up. Okay, so uh, Compassion has a program called the Child Survival Program. It's available to uh, pregnant mothers of a certain level of need um, from the time of conception uh, until the child is one year old. Um, the, uh, the program provides um, various interventions that facilitate healthy childhood development. Um, and some of those interventions include uh, pre- and postnatal care, proper nutrition, as well as uh, community support. Again, available to the mother from the time of conception until um, the child is one year old. Is this my clicker? Okay, so we were asked to look at uh, the effectiveness of this program in preparing the children for primary school, both cognitively and socioemotionally. So we designed a study that would look at observable outcomes by age four. Um, and to do this, we had to identify a proper counterfactual, um, somehow mitigating uh, the time, of time problem where we can't go back and randomly assign a treatment, and we can't go back in time to uh, conduct a baseline study. Uh, so um, we had a few ways of getting around this. Um, but just a quick reminder, and for some of the non-researchers in the room, a counterfactual is an image of what uh, development would have looked like in the absence of treatment, or in our case, in the absence of experiencing the child um, survival program. Okay, so the process, uh, one of the things we did to identify and confirm this counterfactual was we used propensity score matching. Who's heard of propensity score matching? Okay, I'm not gonna get too much into it, so I don't wanna like scare anyone away. Um, so in propensity score matching, what we do, uh, it can also be considered um, as a way of matching on the probability of treatment. So uh, in our case, a treatment or a registration into our program is defined on the basis of a certain level of need at the starting point. So um, um, yes, so we match participants on having similar starting points in life. So what, what does this look like? Well, we have our treated mothers who come from a certain level of need from the time of conception. 
And we have our counterfactual mothers who come from also the same level of need, but they didn't have the opportunity to experience uh, the child survival program. Now, this similarity of need from starting point is important because if we want to eventually look at the causal effects from our program later, uh, once the children reach four years old, we need to make sure that the, they came from the same uh, starting point, same baseline characteristics, uh, same opportunity for child development um, from the get-go. So we go through this process of uh, matching on the propensity score. We identify treated and counterfactual mothers uh, with similar propensity scores, meaning similar probabilities of treatment corresponding to similar levels of need from the starting point so that we can then look at the effect later. Now, this quantitative study uh, had, had a few things to it that we needed to delve into. And one of them was, well, what does that need really look like uh, in the different contexts that we work in? You know, in some contexts, it might mean that a mother um, doesn't have enough money for pre, pre and postnatal care. Maybe she doesn't have a dwelling, um, but it's different per context, right? So we had to take this study and kind of incorporate some mixed methodology into it, incorporating some qualitative methods. Uh, we used some focus groups at the beginning to introduce um, ways to delve into what that need looks like. And not only was this a, a challenge for us who are quantitative researchers who want to make everything black and white and everything numerical and everything nerdy um, and everything that's maybe scary sometimes to some people, uh, it also required us to use some creative methods and creative ways to ask questions that we needed to ask in order to make sure we were getting at the information we needed to do the propensity score matching well. And once we did that, we were then able to confirm our counterfactual and proceed with the study so we could look at differences by age four and identify what is the causal effect from our program. Great, and a minute ahead of time, well done. Do they get points for that? You do. Yes. <laughs> Keep your questions, because you can ask questions at the end of the presentation. Shall we, shall we switch orders? Um, yeah, sure, we'll switch orders. Uh, Ryan, sorry, Rebecca. No worries. <laughs> Good afternoon, my name is Ryan Smeeds. I am not Subodh Kumar, as your agenda says. Uh, Subodh is uh, Food for the Hungry's Director of uh, Monitoring and Evaluation, couldn't be here with us. Uh, my, I work on, our, on the same team. Um, I'm our Senior Director for Learning and Evaluation. Uh, I work a lot with our corporate strategy and try to take our evaluation and connect it to, uh, to strategy and operations. Um, so Subodh's a methodologist. He pre prepared a lot of this. And, uh, those things that um, I don't answer well, it's his fault, um, <laughs> primarily. Um, also, this is the, the this week is the American Evaluation Association's annual conference, and their theme is speaking truth to power. So I'm going to try to speak truthfully and consider you all very powerful in this talk. So Food for the Hungry, we um, are a middle-aged organization. Um, we were, started in the 70s. Uh, work in approximately 20 countries, about 3,000 communities, um, through a multi-sectoral development approach. Um, we have an updated, what we call our heartbeat, that flows out of our organizational values. Um, and then uh, our purpose is, is, is twofold, to respond to human suffering uh, with more humanitarian side, and then to graduate communities from extreme poverty. So this is a new 
concept for us, community graduation. And my presentation is going to talk a little bit about what, what we went through the process we went through to develop a measurement framework to consider communities ready to graduate. Uh, so Subod and I, Luis is here, I was part of this, this team that um, uh, went, went through this process a couple of years ago. Um, and to us, community graduation, um, it, it's, it's just a marker that, that we're doing what we say that we're going to do. But it's based on evidence of a trend of community advancement towards flourishing. So these, the, the bold words there are important for us. So evidence of a trend of progress uh, that shows that communities are prepared to continue their own work. So for us, we, we are less focused on causality. We're just looking for, for some evidence that, that implies a trend of progress. Um, and so we uh, went through the concept to try and figure out the measurement framework that I'll walk you through here. Uh, this this uh, session is about spiritual metrics. Uh, our sort of organizational philosophy and theology, if you will, um, considers the earth as the Lord's and everything in it. Everything is spiritual. So a spiritual metric is sometimes hard for us to define. But we started with sort of the um, you know, more... Uh, customary measures of well-being. So in a multi-sectoral approach, we're looking at health issues. So we, we measure indicators on the prevalence of stunting. We do education, and to us, these are the, the key factors that um, show uh, educational, positive educational outcomes. So kids' uh, early school entry readiness and their early grade literacy, these are pretty well-established indicators that we're measuring. Uh, we measure a household hunger scale, which is a a proxy for, for income, but also is a, food, is a common food security measure. Um, and we're working on um, some more resilience measurements, but we have a disaster-specific resilience indicator that uh, is a little more customized based on settings, uh, as well as measuring gender empowerment scores. So we call that, um, tentatively, I think, a visible elements. You know, these are, are, are indicators you can touch and see and are uh, pretty standard to measure, right? So these are more common, widely accepted. Um, they're quantitative in nature, so we, we, we measure them through a household survey. We've been doing this for a couple of years now um, it, throughout our programs. We also have one in, in this next category that says the invisible dimensions of poverty, which might be more of what we're, we're thinking of when we talk about spiritual metrics. I'm not sure, but um, this is the way that we, we've classified it. So also in a household survey, we have um, an index on, of worldview, um, because for us also organizationally, we, we have a strong emphasis on social and behavior change, and we see that there's a close association between your beliefs, attitudes, values, and your behaviors. So your hand-washing behaviors, your breastfeeding behaviors and things, your beliefs affect those. Um, and so we have a, 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 an indicator that's a, a list of 27 different um, belief statements um, that we're measuring quantitatively as well. And then um, there's some broader social, I, I guess, social outcomes that, that we're also wanting to measure to see whether or not a community is um, considered ready to graduate. And those are, are looking at um, leadership within the community, so church and community leadership. So we have um, some structured workshops that we, um, that we conduct with uh, church and community leaders. Um, we call that our social sustainability index. Sorry, your time is up. Do you want to say Sorry, I should just give them to you all right now. Uh, yeah, I'll spend a card just to finish my presentation. 
We also have a, a, a tool um, that we're using to measure um, the emergence of hope um, within these different groups, so between men, women, and children as well. Um, we're looking at, this says changing communities' attitudes, but we're, we're looking at community relationships um, uh, between different sectors in the communities, between men and women, men, women, children. And then we think because um, in order to see transformation in communities, our staff have to be in a process of transformation themselves. So we're having some, uh, some questions about the, our own staff uh, spiritual formation. So we take these and we combine them into an index together, um, and we call it our Community Graduation Readiness Index. So we're, made, we're combining scores and we're starting to establish trends. So we probably in, uh, I think it's 11 or 12 countries over the last three years have at least two different measures um, of, of this index. And we're seeing uh, advancement towards community graduation, whether or not we're, we're, we're progressing or not. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Ryan. It goes fast. <laughs> Good afternoon. My name is Rebecca Menser, and I serve on the listening, monitoring, and evaluation team at Hope International. Hope is a network of Christ-centered microenterprise development organizations. We're serving in 16 countries. Our mission is to invest in the dreams of families in the world's underserved communities as we proclaim and live the gospel. And we do this by sharing the hope of Christ as we provide biblically-based training, saving services, and loans. We have three core methodologies. These are savings group programs, microfinance institutions, and small and medium enterprise lending. Today I'll share with you a bit more about our savings group programs. These are designed to be a ministry of the local church, not a program of Hope International. It's comprised of self-formed and autonomous groups of typically between 15 to 25 members. And the role of Hope is primarily technical in nature, focused on providing training and equipping the church in that way. As groups gather together, they follow a structure called the five W's. This is welcome, worship, word, work, and wrap up. As groups gather, they save and can take loans out of their accumulated savings. At this point, we have 27 ministry partners serving over half a million savings group members in 10 countries. Now, one of the ways that we listen to our savings group members is through a tool that we call the Hope Quotient Survey. We're in the midst of a redesign, so what I'm talking about is what we call HQ 1.0, and I'll talk a little bit about our 2.0. Now this is designed to understand, better understand the outcomes in the lives of those we serve through the lens of these four domains in order to provide actionable information to equip our teams and our programs to improve the way we serve. Now to give you an idea of the types of things that we learn through this tool, um, I'll share two highlights from Burundi, our savings group program there with our third administration. First, 64% of savings group members reported that they have shared scripture, studied within a savings group meeting with friends outside of that group, um, which we celebrate. We've also learned about changing group dynamics. We saw a 17% decrease in reported high levels of trust between the second and third administrations, and that's something we're diving into now to understand what's driving those changing dynamics. As I mentioned, we're in the midst of a redesign. We have learned a lot, and we continue to learn a lot in this process. First at Hope, we believe that listening is ministry, not just an evaluation of the ministry. And this impacts how we listen and how we honor those that we serve. 
One of the ways is the type of questions we answer. This matters in designing surveys. We've learned that asset ownership questions asked in corrupt environments can create fear in the lives of our clients and members. We've also learned that this is really important in closing the feedback loop. We've worked a lot in communicating with program level offices, but we haven't done a good job yet of going back to the communities and sharing, this is what you shared with us. Thank you for sharing your time. We've learned a lot about time. As you can imagine, in a lot of cases, we need to take less time. And there are also times we need to take more time. The survey is very long, it has been very long. Um, over 100 questions, we're in the midst of the redesign with the aim of a 30-minute average administration length. Uh, that requires narrowing the scope of the survey. To do so, we've convened a steering committee of field leaders and U.S. leaders. And we understood and learned that there are a lot of desires within our organization for what this tool can deliver to the tune of 56 different thematic outcomes. We're not going to measure 56. Um, so we worked together to refine that down to 16 and are continuing in that process in indicator research. We also need to take more time, though. As evaluators, our job is not done when the report has been emailed. Our responsibility is to facilitate learning, and we need to take more time doing that. We've also learned about balancing the what and the why. Hope Quotient 1.0 is a primarily quantitative tool, and it has answered a lot of what questions and raised a lot of why questions. So we're exploring a two-pronged approach um, with a, fo a follow-up focus group to dive more into themes. So we're excited about what we're building, the goal of a shorter tool that's more actionable and more directly tied to our program's inputs. And we're grateful to learn from each of you in the process. Thank you. Well, hello again. Uh, so my name is Nathan Maloney, and I am with Living Water. And I serve as our Senior Director for Program Development. And that's a team that's really focused on program design, monitoring, evaluation, and learning. And I have a couple uh, colleagues with me uh, here today as well. Um, and if FH is a middle-aged organization, uh, we are in our upper 20s. And, uh, <laughs> and we work in 17 countries focused on water access, sanitation, and hygiene programs, or WASH. Uh, that's the acronym there, so I'll be referring to that a bit more. Uh, for this case study, I want to talk about two things that have actually already been mentioned today. Uh, it's a concept of a theory of change, and then a research method called most significant change. And we've recently launched both of these within our organization. And so in June of this past year, we released uh, version 1.0 of our theory of change. Uh, we've launched it to the entire organization, all 17 countries. And it took about a year and a half to develop. And so I won't go into all the details of, of the whole process or even the whole theory of change. Um, but I'll focus on kind of the aspect related to today's topic. And um, I think one of the things that was most interesting about it was, as an organization, it really made us grapple um, with the idea of integral mission. What does it look like um, to care for the whole person? I think as an organization, we'd had this commitment to you know, providing safe water to people. We cared about that a lot, and we saw that as meeting the you know, physical, bodily needs. Um, but we also saw proclaiming the gospel as something very important, but maybe sometimes that was talked about you know, for the eternal implications 
um, that that would have. So it's kind of two separate things with two separate ends. And sometimes we would even talk about providing water as a tool, the kind of instrumental approach, to being able to achieve the ultimate goal, which is to proclaim the gospel. But we said if, if we're going to develop a theory of change, and if, we're, if we really believe in integral mission, it needs to be reflected in our theory of change. And the theory of change is really the building block for all of the monitoring and evaluation work that we do as an organization. And so uh, just briefly, I'll share here um, that there is a link on the screen that you can see livingwater.box.com slash TOC if you want to see the whole document itself. But I've just kind of zoomed in on the top part of our outcomes that we've identified here. And uh, uh, to, to David's point earlier about really grappling with what it is you want to accomplish spiritually as an organization, uh, that led to us coming up with the outcome of thriving churches as saying that is a really core outcome for us. And how we define that is we say a thriving church is a church that's carrying out integral mission uh, within their community and making disciples. And as a result, they are effectively proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. But if we see that happening, we believe that that has massive implications for that community, and especially as it relates to the WASH programs um, that we're talking about. So a thriving church is going to help you know, bring solidarity within a community. It's going to increase trust and cohesion and um, even help build collective efficacy is our theory, which is very important when you're talking about managing um, water services and, and coming together on major projects around water and sanitation. But it can also directly impact um, the actual behaviors you know, around sanitation and hygiene. Um, we think churches that take an interest in that and care about the whole person will be um, engaging and addressing behavior change issues um, within their communities. And then of course, when you are effectively proclaiming the gospel, um, that has, uh, we believe, implications for the whole person, spiritual, social, and physical. And so we hope to see, that's kind of our top level outcome is increased holistic well-being. Um, so that's kind of just a, a quick snapshot. And again, this now really forms the, the backbone of all of our uh, monitoring and evaluation and learning work that we do. All right, so quickly here, I'll just mention a method we're using to help us learn about our theory of change. And we launched it at the, the same time. And I think some of you will be familiar with most significant change um, as a research method. And uh, all right, I got it. Um, Essentially, as a method, you're, you're using uh, interviews to collect uh, qualitative data. But the thing that's most important about it and that we found most helpful so far is the actual process you walk through of selecting a story that you say is most significant and then providing feedback to those who collected the story. So in the countries, our staff are collecting five stories a quarter in communities, and then a country is reviewing those together country review team, and they select what they say is the most significant story of change, and then they have to write up a paragraph explaining why. So that's really a, it's kind of helping us create a culture of learning within the organization beyond just collecting qualitative data and just sitting on it or using a story for marketing. 
And so, and that kind of goes throughout the regional and global level as well. So here's an example we, from our first quarter of doing this, the story that was collected or selected organizationally overall. And uh, the actual process of reviewing it's fairly fun. You sit together, uh, take about an hour, read the stories together, vote on it. Um, so this is some of our regional colleagues um, doing that. Thank you. A little bit nervous here following these presentations. It's always really fun to learn from all of you. So thanks for sharing. Um, as you guys probably know already, I'm Kristen. I'm with Water Mission. Uh, water Mission is a water sanitation and hygiene organization. We design and deliver uh, wash solutions in relief uh, disaster context and also in development contexts around the globe. So what I do at that organization is I am um, angle this a little bit better here. I'm the program evaluation coordinator, so I have the distinct pleasure of getting to design, implement, analyze, report on uh, anything we do with regards to evaluation and research. So today what I wanted to talk about is, and I think you've heard me talk about this in previous years and mentioned a little bit earlier today, is this uh, holistic survey that we've been developing to measure the outcomes and impacts of our programs with regards to, um, for one, transformational well-being. And that's very similar to what Rebecca and Nathan were just talking about, so this sense of holistic well-being. How are our programs and activities that we do actually transforming people's lives other than health? So our watch organization, obviously that's the impact we wanna see. But we truly believe that this work through the lens, through the you know Christian lens that we're doing it is holistically transformational. So how are people's lives being changed with regards to emotional well-being, social dignity, relationships with neighbors, um, spiritual transformation, obviously that's happening in the field, material transformation with um, what Rebecca was talking about earlier, this link between Christianity and um, economic development. So what we've called this the RESTORE survey, which is sort of an acronym, but it stands for the Routine Evaluation of Sustainability and Transformation, but also through this sense of we, through our work, we want to restore um, people's lives, basically, and break the, break the chain of poverty, really. So we had some goals, and we started out with this, um, which are listed here. I'm not going to really go through them, but we really wanted to have a better understanding of what we were stepping into when we were engaging with communities. Our, our field staff didn't really have a sense of the community, community dynamics that were at play where they really needed to invest their time with people at the beginning of a project. We currently didn't have a way to actually evaluate outcomes and impacts. Um, a lot of that was just kind of left to the intuition of our staff, which is really good, but they didn't have any quantitative data to go off of there. We also knew at the beginning of this, we wanted the data to be actionable. So we wanted it to be a tablet-based or a smartphone-based survey. So mobile data collection, we wanted it to be audio-based, so people who were illiterate could take it um, in the local language, so anyone could take it, you didn't have to know English. And we wanted the data, data to be available in the field. So offline syncing, no Wi-Fi, no power, um, it could be acted upon immediately. So our field staff, after administering the survey, could be having conversations with community leaders about sort of the dynamics that we see in the community. And then as we're continuing to engage in the community, what's changing, what's improving, and what do we still need to collaborate and work on? And then of course, collecting stories is really important too. So we knew 
that this is what we wanted at the end. But then, of course, you have to ask yourself, well, how do we get there? What's the best way to go about this to actually measure what matters and to know what we should be measuring and what questions we should be asking? There's my clicker. So the method that we used in this um, was called rapid qualitative inquiry. So some of you, has anyone heard of this before? Show of hands, rapid qualitative inquiry. Okay, a couple of people. So it's also been called rapid role appraisal, participatory role appraisal. It goes by many names, many faces. It's been around since the 70s, so it certainly isn't anything new. Um, but I think a lot of people don't really know that this is an option for qualitative inquiry. And I think a lot of people get a little scared um, by doing qualitative research because it seems like it's this huge investment and what you really want at the end of the day is a survey so you don't have the time to invest in doing weeks worth of interviews or focus group discussions to get the data that you need in order to start building that survey but there's a couple things that you need to keep in mind if you are going to use this method as opposed to sort of a traditional um, like recording the focus group, analyzing the data afterwards, reporting you know weeks later. So this is all done in the field, but you need it needs to be team based. So you have to have a diverse team of folks who are involved in this. From um, from our experience, what we had was two Western researchers from totally different backgrounds, totally different um, fields of study, and then a local. Um, staff in each country and then a translator if we needed it. So these folks were listening to the focus groups that were going on. Everyone's taking their own notes. At the end of the day, after doing, say, five focus groups in one community, everyone compares notes. You have a conversation, uh, much like the phone. Uh, there's a lot of cards up here. <laughs> okay, I have one card because I'm nowhere near done. Um, <laughs> Um, a lot like the photo that Nathan showed earlier, um, very collaboratively having a discussion and deciding, okay, what did you hear? What did I hear? What are we missing? And what's the official version of events? So after you do that for a couple days, you have enough data, you're seeing some saturation, you start to analyze for themes. And this is all still in the field, mind you. So you start to notice common themes, you weight them. So the things you hear more often, you, we were color coding and assigning little numbers and like, weighting the most common things towards the top of the page and the other, you know, less common um, themes that came up would kind of sink to the bottom. And so at the end of your, say, week-long um, time in the field, you had data that was, had been corroborated by multiple sources and had already been analyzed, basically. And you were already seeing salient themes that were coming through. So that kind of speaks to the triangulation, too. And that this analysis has to be iterative. So like I said, you're constantly reviewing the data. This is like live happening in the field so it makes for really really long days um, so it's intensive which can be a challenge to this so you are in the field you're doing focus groups from sunrise to sunset and then you are going back over dinner and analyzing this data and then going to bed and doing it all over the next day so it is it, it's intense don't be fooled it's a lot of work but it also means when you get back to the office you have something to share you don't have to say Sorry, you know, BP, but it's going to be three weeks before you get results because I have to listen to everything that everyone said, type it down, and then analyze it. Um, and by that time, a lot of times our executive leadership has moved on or it's not seen as relevant. So we were able to come back from the field. And I'm sorry, that's just sort of the reality. <laughs> Again, back to the point of we wanted something that was actionable. And that's just something we realized, to be honest, in working. And I think that's probably something you all face, too, is we need 
stuff that we can act on fast because things change really rapidly. And these are people's lives at stake, really, in the type of work that we're doing. So it's intense. Um, but I think this method also too helps you avoid this paralysis that I mentioned earlier of either thinking that including a qualitative component to your work is just too much to do. It's too expensive. It takes too much time. Um, so I'm not just going to do it, anything at all. I'll just develop my survey because that's what we really want. We want a survey at the end of the day. So I'm not even going to bother with this. So I think knowing that this is an option and it's a valid and somewhat rigorous option is good to have in your back pocket because I am a total advocate for including qualitative work, especially as a precursor to quantitative work. And they work great together. Um, and then for us, it really helped us frame this project. So when we were pitching this idea of the Restore survey, we couldn't really tell people what it was at the end of the day. We knew what we wanted and we knew what we wanted it to do. We didn't know how we were gonna do it and we didn't know what it was gonna look like. So it's kind of hard to get people on board. It's kind of hard to get people on board for um, something you can't really explain. So, but to have the qualitative data to share with our organization immediately from coming back from the field, I think was so powerful and it really helped create buy-in for the rest of the project. Because truth be told, we only had um, the green light for investment for this first phase. And I think if we would have dragged our feet and not had something to share that was impactful and real and powerful, it may have taken a lot longer. Maybe it never would have happened at all um, for the organization to think this was something worth investing in. And they have invested heavily in this over the past two years. And I think it has obviously made a total difference um, and we're really excited because we are on the cusp of our global rollout right now. And we think it's just going to be something really awesome for our organization. So thanks for letting me expound and have extra time. <laughs>